today on Ag News Daily. The drone itself has two cameras on it. It has a true color camera, and it also has a multispectral near-infrared co- camera on it. Happy Friday, Ag News Daily listeners. I've got guest co-host Elaine Cub joining me. Of course, this is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily podcast. Elaine, how's it going? Well, we made it through February, so That's this true. is March. In, what, what do they say? Uh, in like a lamb, out like a lion, or the other way around? I don't know how we would define today up in South Dakota. It's cold and it's still snowing, so that yeah. means there will be more shoveling in my immediate future. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Do you think it's going to be a delayed planting season this year? Yeah, actually, I was just, I just had this very conversation uh, with the Commodity Week yesterday um, that you know it feels too early to be hitting the panic button about that but mm-hmm. it's march 1st but you look at the the long-term forecast and it, this cold weather continues so you start getting towards yeah the middle of march if you don't have you know uh, a nice slow steady melting of all of this yeah i think it will start to be a legitimate market uh issue we start would start to worry about not getting as many corn acres in or not getting them in yeah. in a nice early spring so yeah yeah i think kind of two things come to mind when you're talking about all that. The first is that so many guys and gals didn't get into the fields in fall because of weather to get kind of field prep done for planting. So I think that's one thing that could impact planting this year. But then the corn and soybeans acreage discussion. Elaine, in your opinion, you talk to a lot of producers, obviously. Um, you understand the markets maybe a little better than I do, but Will the dynamic change? We've got, of course, the USDA estimates, but will the dynamic change on acreage if we don't get into the fields as early as farmers would like? Do you see them switching back to soybeans for a cash flow purpose? Absolutely. So this is what I'm saying. It's too early to be making that prediction, but it's sort of an if-then statement. Like Mm -hmm. if the weather, if we have a late spring and the snow that is very widespread across the upper corn belt, if that doesn't go away, then yeah, because spring wheat won't be an option up in the right. Dakotas and Minnesota because if it's late, uh, then spring wheat's not an option. So yeah, it goes into soybeans. I don't know. How did people feel about this at uh, Commodity Classic? Was this a topic or what did, what did you guys chit chat about? Yeah. So to be honest, I was only down there for like 24 hours. So I really didn't get a, the chance to talk to a lot of growers. I mean, I've talked to a lot of growers just at uh, speeches and commodity meetings here over the last couple of months. And that's been a concern time and time again is the the factor of delayed planting. I think guys are already, are already really aware of that condition or that potential problem. Yeah. And you are so right to bring up the the, the delays or the, the inability to get into the field in fall, I kind of forgot about that. Kind of put that into the, the memory hole. <laughs> well, <laughs> it never happened, but you're right. Like there's, we're already at a backlog yeah. of tasks. Well, I mean, when you look at everything impacting producers right now, that maybe is not one that we've been talking about because we've been focus- focusing on trade and Washington, D.C. and whatnot. So more immediate concerns. And this is still just a maybe. This is still like, still just frantically checking the 10 day forecast every hour. Yeah, absolutely. But as I mentioned, there's a lot impacting the world of agriculture right now. This isn't really necessarily directly impacting agriculture, but 
I could, I suppose, in the future. Elena, I'm interested to hear your take on it. And that's the meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. They didn't reach an agreement after their two days of meeting meetings on Thursday, but apparently had constructive discussions. Um, Madison and I were talking about this on the podcast the other day. Do you see China feeling threatened if the U.S. and North Korea have some sort of trade deal in place because China trades with North Korea? Yeah, I well, I suspect that China, I'm not the, a great expert in geopolitical stuff, and, and you definitely are got your finger on the pulse here, but my impression is that China kind of feels, yeah, blocked in from all corners here. There, there's so much pressure being put on them on a lot of different fronts. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the IP protection, it's the trade uh, account um, surplus that they run. It's the, you know, them being the heavy or, or being influential in this North Korea nuclear scenario. There's so much that's being asked of them. And it's being asked not just by the United States, but I don't get the sense that they look around to the international community and are seeing anybody saying, oh, yeah, China, it's okay for you to yeah. do the IP stuff. Like they are definitely feeling the pressure from a lot of fronts. And now they're feeling the pressure from the WTO because we had the announcement yesterday that uh, essentially they're placing too much money or giving too much money away in subsidy money for some of their producers. And I saw this come out just yesterday, or I guess today, yesterday, this week really, talking about African swine fever. They're continuing to feel the effects of that. They've seen 100 farms reported. Of course, we don't know how accurate that is since they are state-censored media, but the latest kind of expectations are seeing China's hog population could decline anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. And going along with that, a lot of investors in the pork industry are investing shares and stocks into some of these hog-producing companies, pork processors, and whatnot. I think because that to me is a clear indication that they see this as a long-term effect. They see that hog prices are going to go on the rise in China and they're trying to buy in now before that happens. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, you know, we've seen them uh, admit to culling a million head in a month Mm -hmm. and they've got what, 700 million head, but now you talk about 50 percent or 30 percent or what if what if that's a, a low number right. I mean who knows but I will say this we do see some confirmation of that in this week's export sales report and I don't have the numbers in front of me but I remember that there was a significant burst of Chinese buying U.S. pork so that should continue I mean I think we're starting to see actual evidence of that business starting to come in so the investors that are looking five months six months down the road and expecting to see perhaps a rally in uh, in the hog market the summer that's that's a reality that I, I I could buy into that well that's the thing too is like we bought into that African swine fever story so early on and then it's like now you look at the markets and they're hitting new lows they're not really finding a bottom yet you think it's going to take until summer before we actually see them to pick up Yeah. So if you look at a continuous chart, you're right. It's not real exciting, but you look at the structure of the futures contracts month after month after month. It's those uh, summer contracts, the July contract, August kind of time frame that those contracts start getting hotter and hotter. The spread from one month to the next 
is getting is pricing that in. But you're right that we've been pricing it in for six months already. Mm -hmm. We keep on saying it's six months down the line. And now six months down the line, we're saying, oh, it's another six months down the line. It's it's really impossible to predict because, like you say, we don't. I don't know. I mean, even if we 100% trusted whatever numbers the Chinese mm-hmm. government was coming up with, even they, even if they were being completely transparent about it, it's not something that you can predict, I suspect. I mean, modeling the mathematical way that this, uh, you know, pathogen moves through a population that has some smuggling going on, some cross borders, some rural transportation of right. these animals, is just impossible to predict. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It makes me wonder if longer term, this type of African swine fever disease has the ability to change the Chinese protein diet. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Man, can you imagine, like, what is what is the, the global protein diet going to be 20 years from now I if know. Americans are all eating fake Ew, meat? I don't even want it, no. <laughs> I know, like, don't even get started. But what if that happens? And then China's eating, I don't know, what, more beef? Yeah, let's hope beef. Let's hope beef. But, you know, gosh, I suspect it will be vastly different, um, maybe even five years from now than than what we have today. Yeah, I think so, too. And another thing that could change, switching from protein to crops, um, that's the production of acreage in the United States. We saw hemp get legalized in 2020. We're seeing CBD oil and hemp related products hit the market really hard right now. But earlier this week, during his testimony, Secretary Purdue told the Senate Ag Committee that the USDA is going to proceed very slowly and judiciously on implementing hemp provisions, and it won't be ready until 2020 to really regulate that. But I've just been fascinated by this, and I've talked to a lot of producer groups about this and a lot of trade folks about this or analysts about this. Of Do you see some of those I states or the more conservative corn and soybean states switching to producing products like hemp? Yeah, actually, I wrote my column about this on DTN oh, this week. Perfect. Sort of my pet topic. Yeah. Uh, well, the 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 top uh, the title of the column was that Jerusalem artichoke acres are expected to increase in 2019. <laughs> and it was a play on there was like this scam back in the 80s that this guy was selling Jerusalem artichoke seed to farmers across the Upper Midwest, and with the promise that they would be this great source of alcohol, and alcohol would become the the dominant fuel of the United States. And about half of that came true, right? Some mm-hmm. of that came true, but. But anyway, it was a scam and it was it took place during this time when people yeah, are desperate for alternative crops, desperate for ways to diversify and get a more resilient income stream from one year to the next rather than just depending on two crops. And then one of those crops gets caught up in a trade war. That's yeah, it's not a great model. So mathematically, yeah, we're looking for more crops and hemp seems great. Um, so but you're right about the, the dragging the feet on this. Here in South Dakota, the governor has the the legislature may act on their own, but the governor has come out saying that she wants the state to drag its feet on this mm. a little bit and be more like a 2020 because time frame. Why they would have state licenses? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, okay. you know me, I'm a libertarian. <laughs> I don't know why there is this political um, backlash against it. I don't. It's it's hemp. It's a fiber product. And the CBD oil, nobody's getting high off of right. that. I don't know why politically or just maybe it's just old-fashioned pe- 
people who don't realize the difference. Right. I don't know what's going on in Iowa. Is there is there state licensing? Can people grow it even um, as a pilot project? That's a great question. So uh, my boyfriend was mentioning that one of his friends, well, one of his friends' grandfathers used to have licensing for it in Iowa back. I don't. It's been quite a while. If it was his grandpa, and he's you know mid twenties. And then another friend of his was looking into licensing. So I think people are are starting to explore the option. I have another friend uh, down in Missouri who does insurance for farmers. And he was asking me a bunch of questions not too long ago about hemp because I think and not not that he listens to the podcast, but he didn't just really he just really didn't understand the difference between hemp and marijuana. And I think his concern was the plants look really similar. So how are you supposed to ensure that you're actually providing insurance for the hemp product and not a marijuana plant? So I think there's a lot of, I guess, in that aspect, maybe hoops to jump through. I don't, I guess I don't really know what hemp looks like. Does it look like marijuana? I think so. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the arguments is the legal thing is mm-hmm. law enforcement. Like if a, if a law enforcement officer came to a field and wasn't able know the to difference the person had the permit. But I, my impression of the marijuana growing industry, the actual THC marijuana get high growing industry in Colorado or California is that that's always taking place indoors. Those are very right. highly. Yeah. Well, especially, in, especially in like, the Midwest where we have such a range of temperatures, I don't think that those plants would do well or survive. I mean, like we're talking well, about delayed I mean, planting right now or you can grow them, but, but yeah, it would do well. Personal. Yeah. So, and I've spoken to some folks in North Dakota who have had state licensed pilot program here in the past couple of years. And this gets back to this idea of any specialty crop, not just hemp, but any specialty crop, there's risk in being a first mover mm-hmm. before the entire market is developed because now you've got to be the one who's doing the testing and figuring out the best way to harvest this stuff right. or to dry it or to store it. Or does it, can you just use a regular baler and just store it in bales? And then where do you warehouse it because there's not the processing facilities yet? So that's one risk. But on the other hand, there's the risk for everybody else of being late to the market. Because if everybody wants to get into this and the I states, let's say, do license this or allow folks to start growing that, then everybody gets into it and the market gets flooded and the supply chain can't handle all that supply. So there's risks on both sides here. I think it's the same when you look at the technology industry. I spoke, I guess I didn't really realize I was doing this, but I spoke mostly to ag tech companies at the Commodity Classic yesterday and a lot of them uh, smart ag, for example, which is the doing the auto car to the driverless grain cart. They said it's like they've had discussions with all of the major equipment manufacturers, but it's like they're just basically waiting for one person to kind of dip their toe in the water to do, you know, a start to finish assembly instead of adding it in after the tractor is built. They want to partner with somebody to build it initially from the start. And it sounds like it's the same story there. It's like, they're all kind of just watching each other, waiting to see who's going to be the first person to buy into the idea. So I think it's the same in the tech industry as well. Yeah, nobody wants to be MySpace. Everybody wants to be Face. <laughs> Did you have a MySpace, Elaine? I didn't. No, in fact, I, I know I, I resisted Facebook for a very long time also. But but to this point about the, the driverless tractors, I suspect there the risk is legal. Right, also. and liabilities. Nobody wants, yeah, nobody yeah. wants to be the company that makes the headlines when it runs over a child. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately. But interesting stuff still coming down the pipeline, that's for sure. Absolutely. I bet it was amazing at Commodity Classic, all kinds yes. of cool stuff 
be. Unfortunately, though, I missed Secretary Perdue's address. That was just this morning, Friday morning. He addressed a crowd of about 9,000 registered folks at Commodity Classic in Orlando going on right now. Of course, he talked a lot about trade, a little bit about E15. There's been, of course, that discrepancy between the USDA and what the EPA is saying as to whether or not we're going to see it hit in June 1st, hit there June 1st. Um, But then he also spent a lot of his time talking about the USMCA agreement, what's going on right now with the Chinese-U.S. trade negotiations. It didn't sound like, I talked to a couple of people that were down there, it didn't sound like it was anything too newsworthy or too, like, headline newsworthy. Um, But one thing that did make the headlines earlier, just yesterday, I believe, Secretary Purdue has been spending a lot of time in committee hearings and meetings this week, and he apparently had a hard time this week in a meeting with the Senate Agriculture Committee discussing the SNAP requirements, SNAP work requirements that the USDA proposed right after President Trump signed the 2018 Farm Bill into effect. And quite a few Democratic senators said, you're going to get legal ramifications. We're going to tie this up in court for a long time if you don't change the way that work requirements work. And I think at this point in time, it's basically allowing states to get waivers from the work work requirements, but he wanted to change, um, I think, the amount of hours people work. And then if you have children or don't have children, changing the amount they work as well. Oh, that's interesting. Do you know, like, how much of that program is up to the states versus the federal rules? That's a good question. I think that Secretary Purdue's proposed work rule will change that. And I think that's why it's creating so much controversy is because then it's still in the federal government's hand, but each state will have the ability to apply for waivers, which would give them then the jurisdiction I think, to rule all of the work requirements for their states. Hmm. Yeah, I remember. I mean, this is going way back, I think, before Paul Ryan was even um, whatever he was, House Majority Leader. He he had that idea specifically to, to make any of these food assistance programs or let's call them welfare programs entirely state based so that you could have 50 different attempts at this. You could try oh. it 50 different ways, see what works best. Uh-huh. I don't know. Maybe maybe that'll be interesting. You'd learn learn different lessons from different ways to interpret it. Yeah, I suppose that's true if each state have their had their own interpretations. Although, yeah. I suppose so, nobody would be happy though either. No. <laughs> you know, Probably neighbor not. gets something to get. Yeah. Do you know so you mentioned um the USMCA. Mm-hmm. You you probably knew this already, but I was up at a conference in Alberta last month. And up there, it's called Kuzma. Oh, I didn't know that. How do you spell yeah, and that? It's like K-O-O-O-C? No, 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 no. So instead of U-S-M-C-A, it's C-U-S-M-A, Kuzma. And in C-U-S-M-A. Mexico, apparently, okay. it's Musa. It's M-U-S-C-A. Because hmm. they each want to list their countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everybody goes first. So you've got U-S-M-C-A or Kuzma or Muxa. Muska? Muska. So... I don't know. Those roll off the tongue a little easier, but they are kind of <laughs> Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that one at all. Fun little fact for us for today. There you go. All right. Well, Elaine, let's take a look at where the commodity markets close for today. What's your insight before uh, I run through the prices? 
oh, I don't know, nobody cares what the prices are on March 1st. <laughs> we, we cared very much what they were yeah. through the month of February while the insurance prices were getting yeah. set. But now I guess we just coast until until actual planting decisions need to get made. And when will those insurance dates be released, do you think? Oh, but you could calculate them right now. What are, I don't know. It's like, what was the average in February? I don't know. They're, I, I should, I'm sorry. I should have calculated that for you before I got on the phone today because that would have been a good snippet of information. I'll, I'll tweet it to you and so you okay. can tweet that out. Okay. Perfect. Because absolutely we can calculate that today is what was the, how do you, the average. How do you February go about close. doing it? You just add up every February day. Yeah. So, so every time the cor- the December, 2019 corn contract closed at the end of a February trading session, yeah. that's one Okay. Point. So you're basically that, finding that, the, the mean and find the average of those those closes. Okay. Yep. Okay. I guess that's easy math. I could probably do that. I'll do it for you. Okay. I'll send you a tweet. Okay. I love it. Thanks, Elaine. You bet. <laughs> well, for today's green market, it's not too super exciting. First day of March here. Final delivery was, of course, um, just yesterday. Since we're starting a new contract month, and of course, our markets are sponsored today by the Zaner Group. Ted and Matt, Ted Seifert and Matt Zayner are at the Commodity Classic right now. If you happen to be catching up on your podcasts while you're walking around the Commodity Classic, give them a shout on Twitter at the Ted Spread, or you can give them a call anytime at 312-277-0050. Looking across the grains for today, we saw corn and soybeans earlier in the morning trading in the negative, but closed positive on the day. The March corn contract up two cents. To end at 364 even, while the May up two and a quarter cent to close at 373 even. In the soybean pits, the March contract up just a penny and three quarters at 899 and a quarter. The May up a penny and a quarter to close at 911 and a half, and the November out there in the future up two cents on the day to close at 945 and three quarters. The wheat markets were mixed today, with the March contract up a penny and a half to close at 454 even, while the May down two and two quarters two and a quarter cent to close at four fifty seven and a quarter. Looking over into the livestock pits mixed here in the live cattle markets with the April contract cutting thirty cents on the day to close at one twenty nine fifty five. The June up twenty seven and a half cents to close at one twenty forty two and a half. Feeder cattle's not pretty on the screen today. Big losses both Really, all the way down the board, the March contract cut a dollar sixty-five and a half to close at one forty-one twenty-two and a half. The April down a dollar ten to close at one forty-five oh five. In the lean hog pits, green on the screen with the April contract up fifty-two and a half cents to close at fifty-six forty, and the May up twenty-two and a half cents to close at sixty-five ninety-two. Rounding out our markets with the dairy class three milk futures, the March contract. Lost two cents to close at fifteen twenty-two. The April down eight cents to close at fifteen twelve. For today's interview, I'm going to bring our first kind of little interview here from the Commodity Classic. I caught up with Aerovironment, who we interviewed during the Farm Progress Show this past year, to give an update on where things sit for their company. Making lots of rounds at the Commodity Classic, catching up with Brad Carraway, who's the director of marketing for Aerovironment. We talked to Aerovironment at the Farm Progress Show this past summer. Brad, give us the update. Where are you sitting today as a company? Oh, we're sitting in a great shape. And I think a lot of that success that we're having is really based on the feedback that we've gotten from our customers, whether they be growers, agronomists, crop advisors, or even academic research teams. They've all really helped inform 
the updates that we've made to the Quantix and AVDSS ecosystem. And just to reiterate, you know, it's a fully integrated drone and data analytics ecosystem. Uh, the drone is really the, the tool or the data collection piece, right? And it can fly over 400 acres in 45 minutes, give you high resolution images that you can then, then AVDSS automatically, you know, turns into true color maps, NDVI maps, GNDVI, and then some of the new analytics that we've added are variable rate layer. So now you can export a variable rate layer as a shapefile and input that into a wide range of farm management software. And if you have John Deere Operations Center, it's even simpler than that. You can literally just click on it and it will automatically send that uh, variable rate layer over into the field analyzer that you've already got set up through your John Deere Operations Center. So that's just one of the new features that we've come out with and we continue to update uh, the whole ecosystem. Okay, you used a lot of terms there that folks may not be familiar with. You said variable rate, layers, um, integrating it into new systems. Pretend I don't know anything about um, some, of the, some of the verbiage that you're using. What is it that you're essentially taking from the field with the drone and the data and giving back to growers? So two cameras on the on the drone itself. We've got an 18 megapixel true color camera. So that's giving you just regular RGB still images. Then we have a uh, 18 megapixel uh, multispectral camera. So that's capturing near infrared spectrum, uh, and that's really uh, really gauging and measuring the light reflectance value uh, off of the plants and off of the soil, which in turn gets turned into NDVI maps that show you the uh, normalized differential vegetative index or the vegetative health of the plant from 0.7 and above being like really great that plant is healthy to 0.4 and below being like hey that plant is in serious distress those vegetative health indexes then get manipulated into different uh, maps or layers that then give the grower the ability to zero in on problem areas and those become anomalies rather than having to look through all these different data sets. It's just very visually easy to see, oh, yellow is bad. Okay, let me zoom in on that. Whereas green is good, what is going on with that portion of the field that's different from the other portion? When we talk about things like variable rate layer or canopy coverage or anomaly, it's really comparing those values within NDVI and giving you a starting point to make prescriptions or changes based off of that information. So then let me ask you this, of all of those things you just talked about, what are the new packages that might have been rolled out since the Farm Progress show? Sure. Since Farm Progress, uh, we've gotten feedback from customers, um, from a range of different customers who said, you know, I really need a package that matches up with how my operation, whether I'm a grower or an ag service provider, is structured. Uh, so we have packages that start at $5,500 and go up to 16500 each of them have different kind of structures to them. So for the ag services provider, $5,500 is your buy-in, you know, for the Quantix drone. And then it's $150 um, monthly subscription to AVDSS. That enables all the data management. The We allow you to store as many acres as you want in there. There's no extra fees for it. But then it's $0.30 cents per acre for every acre that's processed. What that also gives you is like a host of new uh, analytics as well as like the ability to manage multiple different clients and have them all have their own exclusive login. 
for the individual grower at 16.5, that's all in. You don't have to pay for an acre process. Process as many acres as you want, and that includes a three-year subscription to ABDSS, the data analytics platform. And we've got an ag service provider that uses this system, Josh Hammond, who is the owner of Pharmacist Consulting up in Dickinson, or Dixon, North Dakota. Josh, tell me a little bit about what it was like to use this system, get it implemented into what you're doing uh, for your consulting firm. Well, I think what uh, AeroVironment did was take all the best pieces of the different platforms and put them all together into one system. So um, it takes off vertically like a quadcopter, which is really simple and unique for me in a tight space. And I've got the um, longer flight capabilities of a fixed wing. So I can cover a lot of acres in a short amount of time on single batteries. And uh, everything's complementary to each other. So I've Everything's run from a tablet. It's all in one system. The pre-flight checks and then just a a simple swipe, and the flight is off and running. And then when I uh, get done flying the field, I can look at it at the edge of the field. It's already on the tablet. And you're referring to using the Quantix drone. Tell me then about the data side of it. What are you getting as far as data, and what feedback are you getting from your growers that you're working with? Sure. So uh, after I get home, I upload the data to the cloud. So then it goes through another process process. into their AVDSS, where I can look at NDVI layers, anomaly layers, um, plant stand counts, things like that. So I can take these images, turn it into actionable information for my growers, whether we need to fix a problem that we discovered or we want to go um, push yield further. We can go make another application of fertilizer, things like that. And in your part of North Dakota, what are you finding as far as problems or things that growers are fixing in that part of the country? It could be something as simple as an equipment malfunction that we didn't see in the field, um, maybe a fertilizer skip or something like that, and we go correct it with a, an application like that. could be compaction layer, and we need to go address that with, with something else. Tell me a little bit about your background. Do you have an agronomy background or a precision ag background? Do you need to have that kind of a background to understand the information and data that's coming out of the air environment systems? So my background is I grew up on a farm. I wanted to be a farmer. I just We had a small farm, and it wasn't feasible. So I've been on the research and consulting side, sales side, and now I'm on the consulting side. So a pretty diverse background, I would say. But um, as far as flying the Quantics, you wouldn't need any specialized background. Sometimes to interpret the different types of data, the, um, you might need a more specialized background to put it into something actionable. Since I've got you... And uh, North Dakota has been kind of a hot area this year as far as acreage goes. And you work directly with growers. I'm going to ask, what are your predictions this year for acreage in in your part of North Dakota? Are we changing to wheat? Are they going to continue to plant soybeans? I know this year has been extremely difficult with all the trade tensions. Yeah, I'm in the far western part of North Dakota. So we've got a wide variety of crops, very diverse um, from pulse crops, oil seeds, small grains, row crops. So I don't actually even look at any soybean fields. So it's a, a different different geography for me. Absolutely. That's exciting. Well, Josh and uh, Brad, thank you so much both for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Elaine, I'm going to hold you to figuring out the insurance price. If folks um, don't follow you on social media but want to know what the price is you come up with, how can they follow you? Well, yeah, uh, if they don't follow me on social media, they certainly should start, I think. It's <laughs> at Elaine Cub, that's E-L-A-I-N-E, and Cub is with a K. But 
let me tell you, a lot of years I'm really just like just waiting and waiting to find those prices because it's so important and it is mm-hmm. important. But this year, I don't know. We can't. It is kind of boring. They didn't. They didn't move around right. all through the month of February, so the average shouldn't be too surprising. The, the December corn price will be somewhere in the range of about four dollars. And soybeans. I don't know what is the price of soybeans today. I, like, I try not to look at that. Yeah. As I <laughs> Again, I put that down the memory hole. Like nine something. Nine yeah, nine sixty. Nine sixty. I don't know. Not not anything too great. Yeah, but not as bad. Nine forty five. Yeah, yeah. November is nine forty five. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe people won't be so excited to follow you on social media and find out that uh, <laughs> that insurance price. Yeah, well, then they sh- I mean, they'll definitely have the conversation with their insurance agent, and they might also be pleasantly surprised that the premiums might go down this year because it was mm. less volatile during the month of February. So there is good news and, you know, kind of neutral news okay. here involved with insurance on March 1st. <laughs> well, there we go. That wraps up the Ag News Daily Podcast. Folks, if you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us at Ag News Daily on Twitter and on Facebook. You can connect with Elaine anytime at Elaine Cub. Feel free to shoot us your insights or suggestions for things we should be covering on the podcast. Elaine, should we let the people go? Absolutely. Great job, Delaney. (laughs) 